This is an ABC podcast. Vets fear a decision to allow farmers to buy and administer prescription pain relief could spell the end for their industry in the bush. In the long term, if you want an industry, a veterinary industry, to be there and to be knowledgeable, they have to be used. So it's really a case of use it or lose it. And they're back. Backpackers return to regional parts of Queensland for the first time since the pandemic began. I was living in England during the pandemic for the two years and I was saving up for when the world opened again. Um, So living in Australia now, it's just like freedom, absolute freedom. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country. We're starting in Western Australia, where a young woman has achieved the seemingly unachievable, purchasing her own home, home rather before the age of 20. But for April Young, it wasn't just a dream. It was a necessity after becoming homeless at the age of 16. The now 19-year-old trans woman represents alarming statistics, as one in five transgender people face homelessness in Australia, often due to family rejection. Our reporter in Albany, Brianna Fiore, has the story. Do you want a coffee, hot chocolate? I've got tea. 19-year-old April Young is adjusting to an unfamiliar rhythm. She's been a homeowner for just eight weeks after paying $230,000 for a two-by-one unit in Albany, five hours south of Perth. I've had almost all my stress from my entire life relieved of me and that is such a strange feeling You don't realise how stressed you are until it disappears from your entire being. A 2016 survey by WA's Telethon Kids Institute found one in five young trans people struggle with accommodation issues and homelessness. April Young says she's been homeless since the age of 16, when she felt she could no longer live with her religious parents. I didn't get to accept that I was trans until I had cut out the idea that I was never going to see my parents and that I had to completely cut them out of my life. I remember it was in 2019, uh, just before Christmas, around December, early December. I purely just couldn't live with my parents anymore. They just became too much to live with and I either had to leave them by physically leaving them and living elsewhere or I wasn't going to survive my mental state living with them anymore. So I walked away. I mean, I was only 16 and a half. I didn't have the resources and maturity to be able to live life as a young, mature, independent adult or make 100% of my own decisions by myself. I did get to manage because of the help of Young House, the AZAR, Albany Youth Support Association, and just a few of my friends that I had in high school. April Young managed to save more than $40,000 for a deposit for her unit. She did so by working at Hungry Jack's and Woolworth's, often after school. During that time, she couch surfed and lived in and out of a local refuge called Young House. Retired local police superintendent Ian Clark helps run the centre and is a firm believer in early intervention. We effectively start from the the ground up and do try and do what we can to rebuild them as much as we possibly can. We're talking as simple as basic human health care like brushing your teeth, a basic 
cleanliness, homemaker skills, all of those sorts of things. How do you keep a house clean? You know, having to go and get a job, going for a job interview, cooking skills, all these sorts of really basic things that most people take for granted. At the moment, Young House can only offer three months accommodation at a time something Ian Clark would like to change. With eight beds, we have a, you know, a continual turnover of young people coming through, which is tough, and it's really tough for the youth workers when we see them going out the doors. Despite finding the time limit on Young House's accommodation stressful, April Young is grateful for the help she received. Did Young House save your life? Yeah, they actually really did. I definitely wouldn't be here if they didn't step in and... A year ago, I couldn't have believed that I would be here now. As for her next project, April Young says she's looking forward to planting her own garden in her backyard. It's a small space, but I get to do whatever I like with it. Uh, My parents, they had a veggie patch in the last house I lived with them. But this time around, it's my own garden and I get to do what I like with it. And I get to make it look all pretty and have clovers in the backyard or I get to choose whatever I want, really. April Young ending that story from Brianna Fiore in Albany. And you can read more about this story on the ABC News website. If this story has brought up issues for you and you need support, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or there's also 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Better access to pain relief for animals in remote areas seems like it would be welcome to most, especially vets. However, some are worried a recent decision by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to deregulate some pain relief could be the final nail in the coffin for the already struggling industry. It has Outback vet Campbell Costello particularly worried. So you're telling me a cowboy can just walk in off a station by local anaesthetic and anti-inflammatory and just give it to their, their animals and, you know, dehorn and do surgery. We're really worried about that. Our reporter in Longreach, Madeline McCusker, has more on this story. In August this year, the Therapeutic Goods Administration made the interim decision to reschedule a number of veterinary prescription-only products to make them easier for livestock producers to access. Lidocaine, which is marketed as Numacaine, has been taken from an S4 to an S5, and Meloxicam, which is Buckelgesic, has gone from an S4 to an S6. This effectively means that both products can be bought over-the-counter without a prescription at rural stores. But Dr Campbell Costello, known as the Flying Outback Vet, said the move is a kick in the guts to an already struggling industry. Yeah, yeah, I am worried. I think we're just going to implode, you know. There's going to be no one left. You know, someone's dog's going to get sick in somewhere like Longreach and you're going to have to travel to Rockhampton or Brisbane or Townsville to see a vet. Dr Susan Swanee is the president of the Sheep, Camelid and Goat Vets Group within the Australian Veterinary Association. She says the rescheduling would mean less calls would be made to vets from producers. This will only make it worse in that we see the, a really strong need for greater engagement between farmers and vets and this is just chipping away at that and reducing how much opportunity we have to engage with farmers. And I think in the long term, if you want the veterinary industry to be there and to be knowledgeable, they have to be used. It's really a case of use it or lose it. Dr Costello says the TGA's decision is reflective of a wider problem. 
the public and the government has really unappreciated veterinary science for a long time and I don't think they're going to realise what services we offer until it implodes. So you're telling me a cowboy can just walk in off a station by local anaesthetic and anti-inflammatory and just give it to their animals and dehorn and do surgery? We're really worried about that. He says there's often an assumption that vets are more financially stable, but the reality is that many are struggling to keep their doors open. On top of devastating mental health issues, falling wages and crippling student debts, he says the future of the industry is bleak. I think the public still has a misconception that veterinary bills are high because we get remunerated well. It's just not the case. I can't pay my bills with making Fluffy the dog feel better. I'm 12 years down the rabbit hole. I do not know where my career is going to go. According to the Australian Veterinary Association, people within the veterinary industry are four times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Dr Costello says the combination of long hours, difficult clients, low remuneration and high student debt has left the industry plagued with mental health issues. We need to really start exploring some options to making veterinary science not a death sentence but a really enjoyable profession that people want to stay in. And I believe that it's a profession that's unstoppable if we can get some investment in the sector. It's just, I don't know, it's just a constant, it's death by a thousand cuts. While the rescheduling is expected to take effect in February 2023, the AVA took another opportunity to appeal last month. Dr Swanee says as a grazier and a vet of 40 years, she was disappointed the industry's perspective was dismissed so quickly. We felt very unheard, particularly in some of the responses. They seemed to completely dismiss some of the material that we presented to them, which we felt was very strongly evidenced. That is quite frustrating. The problem is in making it so readily available, are we going to be delivering good animal welfare to more animals or could we in fact be making it a lot worse? She says while she understands the importance of having access to pain relief, it could lead to serious animal welfare issues. We do need to be able to allow farmers to use these products. It's really critical. And I know in most circumstances, farmers will do it properly. Unfortunately, it's the ones that don't that are going to create the problems. From a veterinary perspective, it means that any control over the use of those products has been taken out of our hands. We have a client relationship in which we're supposed to by our veterinary boards, know the people that we are selling the drugs to and we need to know what stock they have and to have an idea of what volume of drugs they are going to need. Once you take that out of the veterinary hands, there's no requirement, there's no authority that's overseeing how much drug is sold or who it's sold to. And as a consequence, it could be potentially used in completely the wrong way. In a statement to the ABC, a spokesperson for the Therapeutic Goods Administration said the overall benefit of increasing access to the products outweighed the risks, adding they didn't think the rescheduling would increase any risk of unsafe or improper use of the substances. The TGA also said there's no evidence to suggest the rescheduling will have a negative impact on Australia's veterinary industry. A second round of public submissions, which were submitted last month, will be considered and a final decision will be made regarding the rescheduling this month. That story from Madeleine McCusker in Longreach. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio.
Backpackers are returning to regional parts of Queensland for the first time since the pandemic began. It's a boost for tourism in places like Bundaberg and Agnes Water, but also it's a boost for the agricultural industry. Joanna Marie reports from Bundaberg. Foreign accents are again echoing through the dormitories of Bundaberg's Bunk Inn Hostel. English backpacker Daisy Herdman is one of them. I thought I'll come to Australia and do both at the same time, work and travel. And Bundaberg, I need to do my farm work, 88 days of it, in order to get my second year visa. So Bundaberg seems like a convenient place to come and it's lovely. Where were you during the pandemic and, you know, what's life like then compared to now? I was living in England during the pandemic for the two years and I was saving up for when the world opened again. So living in Australia now, it's just freedom, absolute freedom. I've got a lot of things on my list I still need to tick off. I think I arrived in Sydney and fell in love and stayed there for four months. So I've got a lot to tick off my list. But I've been to Noosa recently and I lived there for about five weeks and I absolutely loved it there. But still, there's a lot to tick off my list. International borders reopened to fully vaccinated working holiday makers in December last year, but they've been slow to travel, especially into regional areas. Bundaberg Hostel owner Kyle Myers says that's finally changing. Just sort of over the last month, we've seen a massive increase where people are definitely coming through and our occupancy's gone through the roof, sort of back to pre-COVID levels, which is amazing to see. Where are they coming from? Everywhere. All through Europe, a few Americans, uh, a few South Americans, our UK friends are all here. And then, yeah, obviously a few of the Kiwis are jumping across the ditch as well. It's great. It's great seeing them all interacting together, organising their little trips and stuff around the place as well. It's, yeah, just a totally different dynamic to what the last two and a half years has looked like for sure. Tourism operators in the beachside town of Agnes Water have also experienced an influx of international tourists. Lorenzo Benedetto from Nali Surfing Tours says bus services from Brisbane and Cairns only resumed last month. Since then we've noticed a lot of backpackers are getting off and on the buses and it's been really good for us. I'm doing a surf lesson right now. In fact, I've got two Switzer German, which is, you know, people from Switzerland. I've got two Germans and one lady from Israel. Wow, so quite a variety from everywhere, really. That's right. And uh, yesterday I had uh, three English people, a French person and uh, three Danish guys. Bundaberg Fruit and Vegetable Growers CEO Bree Watson says the agriculture industry is pleased to see them returning. We definitely have seen a slight increase in the number of working holiday makers coming through the region. They're not all ready to work straight away. Some of them are enjoying coming out to Australia and enjoying everything that we have here. But we are hoping that they do take up that paid work sooner rather than later. English backpacker Henry Williams is in Bundaberg completing his farm work for his second year visa before starting his travels. And so far, so good. I'm packing for a lettuce farm. Um, So that involves a lot of washing of the lettuce and stuff and kind of drying it out and making sure it's all in the right quantities and putting it on boxes on the back of lorries and stuff like that. How's the pay been? How's the accommodation been? All that sort of stuff. It's, it's been good, actually. I've, I've, you, ha- you hear some horror stories of people not getting paid enough, not receiving the hours, but I haven't had problems with that. I think the pay's been good for what I've been doing. The accommodation's been brilliant. It's been easy, really, to get work and get involved. So. And what's your plan after you finish your 88 days of farm work? I think I'm going to head up to Cairns, do a bit of travelling around, I've got a 
got some plans in Sydney for the New Year's and Christmas and, and things. So, yeah, just going to enjoy myself for a little bit. And then if I've got more days to do, I'll come back here and crack on with them. Sounds pretty good. Joanna Marie reporting there from Bundaberg. And to Griffith in New South Wales, where the local hospital has become the first public health provider in the state to pioneer a new technology in breast cancer surgery. Griffith Hospital's head surgeon worked for years to get an approval to use tiny metallic seeds the size of a grain of rice, which are implanted as a marker. Melinda Hayter reports. Dr Kate Fitzgerald is the first to admit her mission to bring the metallic seeds to Griffith Bay's hospital was around working smarter, not harder. When she arrived at the hospital, it, like so many across Australia, utilised wires to mark cancerous lesions to be removed in surgery. They're cheap and readily available, but as Dr Fitzgerald explains, they also have their limitations. That wire has to stay in so it gets taped down and then the lady usually has to wait around until theatre is ready and not dislodge that wire. It also means she's fasting that whole time. For me as a surgeon, that wire is very flexible. Yes, I can feel it on the outside of the breast, but it's not very easy to feel on the inside of the breast. So we quite regularly will end up taking either too much or too little breast tissue. Dr Fitzgerald had used the seeds which contain lead and emit a sound when scanned with a special wand when previously working in Scotland. She missed them and their ability to help her undertake a more accurate and cosmetically elegant surgery. I'd end up having to do another wire case and I'd just get to the end of it going, oh my God, you know, what am I doing still here trying to find a wire? It was the catalyst for what ended up being a three-year process to get the approvals to use the metallic seeds. Dr Fitzgerald says it was arduous. Paperwork? A lot of red tape, but also then the red tape would change, so a new form would come out with a new set of paperwork. And then COVID probably hit a bit. There was also the issue of cost. Dr Fitzgerald approached the Griffith Breast Cancer Support Group, hoping they might make a small contribution. The support group's president, Kay Mossman. We really felt that it ticked all the boxes for us. The actual implanting of the seed made surgery such an accurate exercise. Not so much tissue needed to be removed from the breast. So it was a really great thing to do. The group used its cash reserves as well as local fundraising efforts to raise more than $50,000 to purchase 10 of the seeds and the machine needed to use them. The equipment arrived in Griffith late last year and now six surgeries have been completed using the seeds. A further two are planned in the next month. Dr Kate Fitzgerald says feedback's been overwhelmingly positive so far. Five of the six have nothing to compare it to, but all found it was very straightforward. It was pain-free apart from a bit of local anaesthetic. Um, one woman had previously had a wire-guided procedure done and then had to have a mag-seed procedure done. And her feedback was amazing. She just said it was like night and day. What she actually called the wire was barbaric. The New South Wales government is closely watching how the seeds are utilised at Griffith Base Hospital. Regional Health Minister Bronnie Taylor, herself a former cancer nurse, says what's happening in Griffith is inspiring. She has defended the use of fundraising to purchase the equipment, saying donations of that nature have a place. 
No one told this group to go and do that. They've done it because they want to, because they love their community, they love where they live. And I know that people look to government and a lot of people would disagree with me and they'd say, well, hang on, that's the expectation of government. But this actually brings a sense of ownership and it pushes government, it pushes us to look at things like the mag seed. The Minister says the government is open to funding the seed's use in other public hospitals. It's reducing our time in theatre, so that's actually really more efficient for the hospital system. That might mean that we can fit an extra person in on that list so it's definitely something that we want to progress let's look at how it goes here let's look at the evidence already is really positive extremely positive and let's keep going with that and as it is the Murrumbidgee local health district has committed to the ongoing funding of the seeds and discussions are underway about how they may be used in other hospitals in the region it's pretty incredible story that one Melinda Hayter reporting there And finally, we're going to go to the regional city of Armadale in New South Wales, which is home to more than 600 Yazidi refugees. The group arrived there in 2018 after they fled the Islamic State in northern Iraq. They were resettled in Australia as humanitarian refugees. Since then, they've embraced their new home and now they're sharing their traditional foods through a project that is also teaching them restaurant skills. Jen Ingle takes us inside Armadale's first social enterprise kitchen. Manal, Sada and Alam are preparing meals for the evening trade. Everything is prepared fresh on the premises. In the restaurant we make only this food. Chile fry and dolmes and we will make koba and biryani. We will make like many different food. Manal Kudida has been working in this restaurant for two years. Like many of her compatriots, she fled violence back home in Iraq. I came to Australia because we had a genocide and our country is really really not safe and we cannot live there. These women are learning new skills, which not only earns them money, but prepares them for a career. How's it going, guys? How's the dolmatis coming? Uh, I'm making dolmat. Yeah. I will make... Um, the restaurant is run by Phil Mitchell. Ah, uh, perfect. Smells good. It was a bit of a family decision about two years ago when we were looking at opening a restaurant in our motel and we were trying to work out the different ideas that we could do from people that had not much experience running restaurants. We thought, if you can't be the same as everyone, you should be a bit different. Um... Uh, Community is one of our core values and we were wondering what to do with our restaurant space at our motel and and the idea to include some of the Azidi community um, in what we're trying to trying to do um, and try and showcase their food and if we could set up some sort of training scheme to to let these guys have their first job we thought that would be like a really bonus like a good bonus for our motel essentially not only the food is traditional but also the ingredients initially it was quite difficult um, but there was and there was a lot of fun walking around coles with our head cook at the time pointing at stuff and trying to work out the english translation and how that would fit um, but the we try and use a lot of local ingredients and um, it's starting to work really well. Plus, there is an Azidi restaurant, in, uh, an Azidi um, supermarket in town, which has helped with a couple of the other key ingredients that we've needed. Just pick a time, the amount of people, go to customer. Setting up the restaurant was a challenge, particularly through the dark years of COVID-19. But a new chapter is beginning. 
I think what's easier now is we know what the restaurant is, we know what the idea is, um, whereas before we were sort of letting it evolve. Um, but now we've got a bit of momentum and we're moving into summer. The Yazidi Place has joined forces with charity Plate It Forward to become Armadale's first social enterprise restaurant. Plate It Forward's a social enterprise and a charity based in Sydney. All their venues give a dollar per meal and they make uh, meals for um, people that need food during the week. It sort of starts off with the core values of community and our environment and training our staff um, over profit. Mr Mitchell says the partnership is a perfect fit and one dollar from each meal sold will go to Plated Forward, which he says is not just about good food, but also employing, training and educating people who might have had difficulty otherwise entering the workplace. I hope they can either do a traineeship or do an apprenticeship or at least have the confidence to have their first job um, and then go and do bigger and better things. For Manal and her colleagues, it's a chance to share something of their heritage. I see when we make our food and people happy with and they like it, that's really good for us or for everyone. I'm happy they happy with our food. And thanks to Jen Ingle for that story from Armadale in New South Wales. And that's Australia-wide for this Thursday. Remember, you can podcast this show whenever you want to. Go to the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your favourites. Just tap in Australia-wide and you'll find us there. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.